In the passage I just read for you, Numbers 25, verses 1 to 9, it's fairly straightforward to understand what is going on here in this passage. Essentially, the people of Israel the people of Israel get into sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab and as we will see uh, though it just says the daughters of Moab here there were also daughters of Midian there as it was Moab and Midian who basically made an alliance to destroy the people of Israel and there's this sexual immorality and then there's this idolatry going on so Moses receives instructions from the Lord that the chiefs of the people are to kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. I think that's the sense of Numbers 25 and verse 4 where it says this, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the, first, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Now grammatically that can mean take all the chiefs of the people and hang all the chiefs of the people in the sun. But I think given the next verse, which says, Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. I think it's better to take it as this. Get the chiefs of the people together and hang the idolaters in the sun. In other words, solicit the help of the other leaders of Israel and kill the people who have done all this wickedness in Israel. That seems to be what is going on here, though commentators have some debates and disagreements amongst themselves. Then we see in verses 6 and following a really high-handed sin that in plain uh, sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while Moses is talking with the chiefs of the people, this guy just brazenly brings one of these Midianite women into the camp and just goes into his tent with her in the plain sight, like not even trying to conceal it. So this is a really brazen act of sexual immorality that is being committed here. Well, Phineas, who is the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, in other words, Aaron's grandson, according to verse 7, gets a spear and goes in and kills them both. And then the Lord is condones this action, which implicitly was not an act of personal vendetta, but was him acting as a priest in his official capacity and probably was one of the judges of the people who had been assembled together. And so here he is acting in his official capacity, meeting out God's judgment. So this would be more like a police officer justly killing someone in the line of duty or a judge handing down a sentence of capital punishment in the official line of duty as opposed to for example, me getting really mad that my neighbor is sinning and killing him, right? So this is just, lest anyone wrongly imbibe the zeal of Phineas, all right? So it's fairly, it's fairly straightforward what is going on here in this passage. Remember, as I pointed out before, that this all happened at Balaam's suggestion, Exodus 31. Uh, or sorry, Numbers 31 tells us this. This all happened at Balaam's suggestion. So when Balaam goes away after not having had the opportunity to curse Israel, he's Im- implicitly, we may infer, he was feeling kind of dejected that these four times he wanted to curse Israel, but lo and behold, the Spirit of God came upon him and he was forced to bless. 
So he goes away thinking, well, how can I collect on Balak's reward? And he comes up with this bright idea, which he passed along to Balak, the king of Moab, and the, the king of Midian, who was with Balak, the king of Moab, that they should send some of their prettiest young ladies out to seduce the Israelites. And lo and behold, the plan works. Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing, according to 2 Peter 2.15, and he gets his payday here by enticing the sons of Israel into this sin. Now, similarities abound with Exodus chapter 32, where the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, and they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt sacrifices, pardon me, burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Which is a euphemism, I think, for sexual immorality in that case as well. So here is Moses being gracious to them on a mountain. Or sorry, the Lord being gracious to them on a mountain as Moses goes up to meet him. And here are the people of Israel down below acting in wanton rebellion and sin. Now remember where Balaam was the previous chapter. What? Up on a mountain. Looking down at the people of Israel. And what was the Lord doing? He was causing Balaam from the top of the mountain to bless the people of Israel who were down there at the bottom of the mountain. So we have here this stark parallel where, where God is graciously uh, blessing the people of Israel from the top of the mountain. Here are the Israelites down at the bottom of the mountain, totally undeserving. And this was the whole thrust of the Balaam narrative, wasn't it? That God is graciously blessing the people of Israel, though they don't deserve it. God has made promises to Abram to be gracious, and he's keeping those promises. So here we see again just the undeserving nature of these... Uh, Israelites. Now Paul says, referencing both incidents, the incident in Exodus 32 and the incident in Numbers 25, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 to 8, these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's in reference to Exodus 32, of course. And then he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a reference to Numbers 25. So, what the Bible does with this story later in inspired interpretation and application is it says, don't do that. 
In other words, what we have in front of us in Numbers 25 is very plainly a cautionary tale. So, my first main point is this. All of that by way of introduction. My first main point is this. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. Make a clean break with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just a few chapters earlier to 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul references the Numbers 25 narrative. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, we read this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And God. I think what we have in Numbers 25 seems to be probably by inference and implication some sort of religious orgies in offered up in service to Baal of Peor. Those who partake in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither will adulterers according to 1 Corinthians 6. Which doesn't mean, by the way, that you can't be forgiven for adultery. Nor fornicators. This includes also pornography. Think about it. This is all sexual immorality. And the, the scripture puts it in a really stark way. If you do these things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I'm not saying you can't be forgiven, but what I am saying is you just can't go on in these things and assume that you're going to heaven. In fact, as John Piper put it to one guy that he was talking to, he said, if you don't stop looking at pornography, you're going to go to hell. And the, the young man said, well, how can you say that? Because I've heard you preach about justification before, and we're not justified based on our own merit. We're justified by the free grace of God in Christ. And I believe in the Lord Jesus and, you know, so on and so forth. And how can you say that? And John Piper said, I'm just literally telling you what the Bible says. If you keep doing this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're going to hell. We need, we need to understand the countercultural, shocking import of this statement. The world we live in is sex-saturated. And we'll, we'll tell you it's not a big deal. Don't get so worked up about it. I mean, everyone sins, nobody's perfect. I remember I was struggling with pornography many, many years ago when I was a, for a, a new Christian, when I first became a Christian. And I went and talked to the guy who was my pastor at the time. 
And he told me, well, don't worry too much about it. A lot of men struggle with it. That was the pastoral counsel I received. Whereas the apostle says, if you keep doing that, you're going to hell. The world we live in minimizes sexual sin. Whereas the scripture talks in very plain terms that you cannot go on in sexual sin and inherit the kingdom of God. We are told in our world that sex is a need. Now, listen here. I'm not, I'm, I'm certainly at this point, not a big fan of Andy Stanley. At this point, he said things that are downright heretical. Uh, so I'd like to distance myself very clearly from his life and ministry. But there was a guy in my church a number of years ago who listened to a lot of Andy Stanley. And I was listening to a series that he did on uh, sexuality and marriage and stuff like that. Before he came out with some of the more heretical things he said lately when he wasn't so bad, if you will. Um, and some, some of it was good. And I remember one of the things that was good from that series was he said, you're told that, that sexual fulfillment is, is a need. But he was like, no, no. Like, food is a need. If you don't have it, you'll die. Water is a need. If you don't have it, you'll die. He was like, if you don't have sex, you won't die. And it was just, it was like, uh, like the penny, the penny just dropped for me that this is a cultural lie that we are told. That it's like a need or a human right to enjoy sexual gratification. And the reality is, it is not. We need to recognize the lie for what it is. Recognize that it's not a little thing. It's not just, well, you need to get your needs met. So it's understandable, especially if you're a single person or you know, if your spouse is unavailable or whatever. Well, don't worry about it too much. You need to have your needs met. First of all, it's not a need. Second of all, it's a huge sin. And God says, if you don't stop, you're gonna die and die in your sins and go to hell. So Piper's right, okay? This is a serious thing that we gotta make a clean break with. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. Make a clean break with it. Secondly, sexual immorality and idolatry often go hand in hand, as in here, Numbers 25. We see here that there was sexual immorality and there was idolatry. Now, it was, well, I'm trying to remember which commentator it was who said that it was probably after the sexual immorality had occurred that there was a sense of uh, solidarity with these women that it would be natural for the men of Israel to worship their gods after the sex act. Another commentator says that they probably said, if you, will, if you won't worship our gods, then we're not going to be intimate with you. And it was therefore like held out sort of as bait or something like this. It doesn't state clearly in this text exactly how it happened, but we see that it was together. In fact, we know that um, 
it's well, it's likely that that this Baal of Peor was some kind of a fertility god, and so a lot of times in the ancient world, in the worship of fertility gods, you would perform fertility actions, and so it may have just all gone together. Whatever the mechanics of it were, and whatever led to one to the other, the reality is that in Numbers 25, they plainly go together. We can rec- we should recognize that sometimes sexual immorality leads us to idolatry, and sometimes idolatry leads us to sexual immorality. In 1 Kings 11, we read this about Solomon. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So in this case, it was the sexual immorality which led to the idolatry. You might say, well, it wasn't sexual immorality, they were his wives. Well, there were a thousand of them. So it was still clearly this lust that drove Solomon to these women, which in turn drove them to idol which in turn drove him to idolatry. Now sometimes it's the Moabite women, so to speak, that lead us to idolatry. Sometimes it's Idolatry, which leads us to the Moabite women. Consider way back in Genesis, the story of Abram and Sarai and Hagar. It was their idolatry of children which led Abram and Sarai to put Abram into a sexually immoral relationship with Hagar. First as a concubine and then as a second wife. It wasn't right for Abram to be with Hagar. And yet there was this idolatrous preoccupation with children, especially on Sarai's part, which moved them towards sexual immorality. Consider other ways that it can happen. When we make, it, when we make an idol out of relational fulfillment, or it could be sexual fulfillment as well, as I talked about earlier, but we make an idol out of relational fulfillment. I must have my relational itches scratched, so to speak. Or we make an idolatry of a certain kind of 
feeling. Like sometimes you, sometimes you find an older man straying into sexual immorality, and and you debrief after, and he says, you know, I felt young again or something when I was with her, or whatever it is. Like there are these idolatries that are not necessarily sexual in the first place, but can actually lead us into sexually immoral relationships. So recognize that sometimes it's idolatry that leads us to Moabite women, and sometimes Moabite women that leads us to idolatry, so to speak. Pay attention to the heart dynamics. Outward sin always starts in the heart. Thinking about the relationship here between idolatry and sexual sin. James chapter 1 puts it like this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There are things which start in the heart and get bigger and bigger and eventually manifest themselves outwardly. This is true not only with sexual sin, but it certainly is true with sexual sin that that it starts way back before in the heart. I remember many years ago sitting down with an older man who gave me much better and much more godly advice than my uh, former pastor did. And this man told me that adultery begins long before you hop into bed with someone else. There are many other choices that you make, many other compromises that you make before you actually end up there. So pay attention to the heart dynamics and recognize that big outward sins always start in the heart and they always start in this seed form. Being born and then growing up and maturing and producing their own kind of uh, consequence. So recognize that outward sin always starts in the heart, but also recognize that sin in the heart is sin. We should have in our minds already what Jesus said about lust in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's not just I need to manage these feelings in my heart so that I don't sin. We have to recognize that not only do these feelings in the heart lead to bigger and bigger sins, but these feelings in the heart in the first place are sins. Our confession says that even our sinful nature and its inclinations are truly and properly sin. As well as it says, as well as the first motions thereof. So even just, even if you immediately catch yourself when you start to have a wrong thought and a wrong desire, and you immediately say, no, I'm not going there. I'm rerouting that. I'm refocusing. I'm reprioritizing. It's good that you do that because you're making sure that this doesn't become bigger and bigger and it doesn't grow exponentially. It doesn't snowball and become something much bigger than it is. So it's good that you do that. 
But you need to recognize that even that first inclination, the very fact that your heart is even inclined to go that way, the very, the very impulse itself, our confession of faith says, is truly and properly sin. This is just how deep sin goes in our lives, in our, in our hearts. God, who is holy, would never have that inclination that you just had. So we have to call it what it is. That right there is truly and properly sin. So outward sin always starts in the heart, but sin in the heart is itself sin. So as we think about Numbers 25, these things happened as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. But there's a good example in this passage for us, which is Phineas. As I said, if you know that your neighbor's up to no good, it's not your place to grab a spear and barge in and, you know, make it right. Phineas was acting in an official capacity here, all right? But the zeal of Phineas is commended by the Lord. I think what we need to to recognize is that with the zeal of Phineas, we need to kill the sin in our heart while it's little. We need to zealously keep the heart with all vigilance, as Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says. We need to have that Phineas kind of aggression towards our sin while it is small. But listen, sometimes we don't catch it when it's small. You may be sitting here tonight with a sexual immorality problem that's out of control. For all I know, some of you looked at pornography this afternoon, just before you came to church. Listen, if it's too late and you didn't get it when it's small, then you need, you need to battle your sin at its full strength. Which is less desirable, obviously. What would you rather fight, a baby dragon or a full-grown dragon? Right? Don't let it get there. You should learn the lesson that you shouldn't have let it get there. But look, if it's, if it's big by now, you've still got to kill it. You've got to go at that thing with the zeal of Phineas. And it's probably going to be a longer battle. It's probably going to be a more violent battle. And there's probably going to be a lot more of an uncomfortable battle than it would be to put a spear through a baby dragon. But you still got to fight that thing with the zeal of Phineas. Understand from this passage that you must fight this. Consider soberly a couple of statements from Matthew Henry in conclusion here. We are more endangered by the charms of a smiling world than by the terrors of a frowning world. They are our worst enemies that draw us to sin. For that is the greatest mischief any man can do us. Look, if the devil showed up in stereotypical fashion, in a red jumpsuit with horns, pitchfork, and was like, worship idols. Hey, Christian, worship idols. You'd probably tell him, take a hike. Right? But look, it's the insidious ways 
the deceptive ways, the ways that you think this is not going to be so bad. This is all right. The things that feel alluring, the things that feel compelling. I have no desire to obey a man in a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork. But there are things which would pull at my desires and my affections and my inclinations. And he knows it. And so he doesn't always launch a full frontal assault and directly tell you his intentions and so on and so forth, but comes at you to steal and kill and destroy with a Trojan horse. You might remember the old story in Greek mythology where Paris steals the wife of Menelaus, the king of Sparta, and brings fair Helen back with him to the city of Troy. And Menelaus and Agamemnon team up and bring a fleet of ships across to Troy. And uh, Hector bravely defends the city of Troy. And Achilles launches his attack against Hector and so on and so forth. And this battle rages on. They just can't seem to defeat Troy until they go park their ships around the corner out of sight and leave a large wooden horse as a parting gift for Troy, for the Trojans. They say, oh good, Menelaus and Agamemnon and those guys left. And look how kind they've been to us to leave us this wonderful gift of this horse. Well, let's go ahead and open the gate and wheel it into our city. Well, lo and behold, for those of you who don't know the story, in the middle of the night, a little trap door in the horse opens up and out come a bunch of Spartans. And the story ends with Troy being conquered. Listen, some things don't look like an enemy. They look like what you've always wanted. But they will burn the city down. Some things don't look dangerous. They look pleasant and pleasurable, but they will burn the city down. Some things don't look like death. They look like fruit that's pleasant to the eye and good to the taste, but it will burn the city down. Some things are a Trojan horse. So recognize that yes, you're, you're saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ and not of your own merit. You're not going to earn your way into heaven by being sexually pure enough. And yet at the same time, the grace that saves us from the penalty of sin enables us to walk in newness of life. And God expects us to walk in newness of life. And whoever does not keep Christ's commandments doesn't love Jesus. That's the way the Bible puts it. Whoever goes on and continues in sexual immorality is going to hell. That's the way the Bible puts it. Sexual immorality, the idolatry that often goes hand in hand with it, the heart dynamics that move us in that direction and get us there, they are Trojan horses that may seem pleasurable, may seem desirable, may seem like they're not bad things but good things, but they will burn the city down. With the zeal of Phineas then, fight against sexual immorality and the idolatry that so often goes hand in hand with it. Keep your heart with all vigilance, with the zeal of Phineas.